The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. And for these eight years, we were building our cybersecurity infrastructure. We experienced four large-scale uh, cyber attacks on our energy infrastructure. We had, we suffered from the Apache and not Apache, which were directed to Ukrainian financial infrastructure, but as a side effect, you know, the world losses is about, according to the State Department, it's more than $10 billion. I'm Benjamin Wittes, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, November 14th, 2022. George Dubinsky is the Deputy Minister of Digital Transformation of Ukraine. It is a ministry set up to modernize government services for Ukrainians that has taken a lead role in keeping Ukraine functioning online during the war. On Thursday morning, he joined me before a live audience at the Hewlett Foundation's Cybersecurity Grantee Convening Conference in Los Angeles. It was a wide-ranging conversation that started with what the ministry was meant to do, what role it has taken on during the war, and it covered a lot of ground. How has Ukraine remained so resilient amidst Russian kinetic and cyber attacks? Why have the Russian cyber attacks been less effective than we expected them to be? And why is the Ukrainian internet still up when so much of the power is down? It's the Lawfare Podcast, November 14th, George Dubinsky on Ukraine's cybersecurity. I want to start by asking you about the ministry you head, which has, or, or deputy head, which has no analog in American life. And so I'm interested, first of all, what is the Ministry for uh, Digital Transformation of Ukraine? And particularly, what was it before February 24th? We'll come to the role that it is playing now momentarily, but what was, what is the ministry that, that you help run? Uh, first of all, hi everyone. Hi Benjamin. Thank you for having me uh, today. Actually, about the ministry. The ministry was uh, established just after the election of our president Vladimir Zelensky, and it was just in line with his vision of the future. And even initially, uh, the ministry 
he was going to call it the Ministry of uh, Innovation, uh, Innovations and Transformation. But uh, after that, he decided that, you know, the digital transformation is a key uh, combination, which is cross-cutting everywhere, and decided to, to call our ministry, Ministry of Digital Transformations. And actually, the, the key idea was to, to, the general idea of the ministry, to make the life of our people in Ukraine more comfortable to introduce new digital technologies, to make it uh, easier, to make it more convenient, and uh, to help people to, to go to, the, to transit to the future. And, but we have quite uh, had uh, quite ambitious goals uh, since the start, uh, particularly, you know, specific uh, goals were uh, to transform, to, to move all services uh, to online governmental services. So by the uh, 2024, we are uh, expected to move all, uh, all public services uh, to make them on online. And even we had a, a rule, uh, no, service of, uh, no service could exist uh, offline if it will not exist online. Another idea was to cover uh, 95% of uh, uh, infrastructure settlement with high-speed internet. And uh, also to involve our people to digital skills, to have at least 6 million people uh, involved in the digital skill development pro uh, program, and to raise a part of uh, our IT sector in GDP up to 10%. And let's say, you know, before this full-scale invasion started on February 24, we were quite successful. And we really created, uh, we, we really covered 97% of our territory, 97% of our population with high-speed internet. And uh, we, we created uh, conditions and connected uh, 3,000 villages with high-speed internet, uh, 6,000 social uh, facilities, and uh, we covered yeah, yeah, around 97% of our territory. And we did uh, a few quite uh, impressive things, at least for Europe. We established such service like DIA. DIA means, uh, in direct translation, DIA means action. But DIA is also a acronym, which means Drava IA, so state and me. And so in, uh, it exists as a mobile application and it exists as a web service. And there we have, particularly in mobile application, we have 14 digital documents and for, uh, 20 services. And in our mobile application, we have 18.3 million users. And we have web uh, application, let's say, where we have uh, more than 70 uh, public services online, and we have more than 21.7 uh, million users. And actually, you know, this kind of ecosystem where you have almost, if not everything, but very many services which government provides to the uh, citizens. Particularly, we, we were first in the world, uh, we were first country, uh, which equals the electronic passport to paper passport. We were first country in Europe, uh, which uh, also legalized the digital uh, driver license. And in your DIA, in your smartphone, 
you have ever seen your passport, your COVID certificate, your driver license, your uh, register for your card, your insurance. You can start business. Uh, you can uh, online. You can change the business. You can uh, ask uh, some, you know, paper certificate of criminal record, for example. And even it was before that full-scale invasion. And after that, exactly, we added some specific uh, applications there. So we were quite successful in that, our ministry. And besides that, uh, we also created some conditions for IT business in Ukraine, literally a couple of weeks before the invasion and the middle of, I mean, in the middle of February, we established this, uh, we launched the program, which is called DSCT. Uh, it's kind of electronic residency uh, where you can register your IT company and have probably one of the most favorable regime from the point of view of taxation and legislation in the world. So it's around 5% of taxes for IT companies, very easy registration. And again, you know, we started it in just in, in a week or two weeks before the war. But since that, we have more than 300 big companies already registered in, uh, in the service, and they are working and they are developing their business IT. So we are a ministry which uh, is moving our country to, to, to the future. And for that, we have our uh, engines of transformation. So in each uh, ministry, we have a, uh, on the level of the deputy minister or deputy of the head of the agency, we have CDTO, uh, Chief Digital Transformation Officer, which is responsible for digitalization of processes and uh, services in this ministry. It allows us to be the most well-connected maybe ministry in our government. And it allows uh, it allows us, you know, also to move our reforms through other governmental uh, branches. Let's say so. Just in brief, when the full scale invasion happened, a lot of things changed uh, in Ukraine, and I assume that you guys acquired uh, some mission set that was immediately associated with the conflict. Uh, what has the role that the ministry been playing during the full-scale invasion look like in addition to the baseline mission that you were already playing? Mm, Benjamin, you, you, you understand, you know, everything uh, has changed. Even we, we are in war for eight uh, and a half years. After the full-scale invasion, all agencies, all, um, you know, entities and People, you know, change their mind, and they uh, uh, they decided if we will not protect our country, we will not exist. So exactly, we changed also our work to help to protect and to for our country and to secure our economy. So exactly, the ministry uh, we were responsible for particular for telecommunication sector. And exactly, we started to, to work with telecommunication companies, particularly with SpaceX, to provide our people with spare uh, communications because of uh, Russians ruined, significantly ruined our telecommunication infrastructure. Also, we started to, to, to work because of uh, on the third day of the war, uh, Russian 
Cruise missile, uh, missile uh, hated our central data database, we started to move our registers in more safe places. And uh, just literally once in, uh, in the week before that, we adopted a law which allowed us to move the critical registers to cloud to the clouds. So we started to work with big tech companies, with our partners, uh, and ask them to host our uh, critical registries, uh, which allowed us uh, to continue to work as a country, as economy. And so we, we secured our the most critical registries in Amazon, in uh, AWS, Amazon Web Services, their clouds, and Microsoft Azure, Oracle clouds, also governments of uh, other countries help us and Polish government particularly, you know, they created specific servers for our registers. Also, uh, we created a few, uh, we, we started to work with big tech companies and they helped us a lot. Even, you know, on the level of, we call it digital solidarity, they stopped their activities and their business with Russia. It was very important from moral point of view. It was moral support for us because of the companies based on their corporate values, which are probably the same with our values. Uh, they decided to stop operations with Russia and to stop finance Russian warfare in this uh, case. And they provided us with many very helpful technologies which were needed uh, during this severe, let's say, time for our history. And we on our side as well, you know, we, we, we were working. Uh, our D application and uh, continued to work. Uh, literally each week or each two weeks, we, we launched uh, a new application for people who, for internally displaced person, for example, to register them to, to provide them with financial assistance. Also, we have a specific application which allowed people to, to uh, take picture and to uh, apply uh, if their houses were destroyed by Russians. You know, they can apply for for assistance and uh, make a documentary of them. We launched a specific application. Which we call e-warok, which means e-enemy, uh, allow people uh, to inform uh, about the hostile troops they see, you know, and inform about their move. It was very helpful for our armed forces as well to know what's going on. Even you know to counter Russian propaganda because the Russians they ruined the uh, regular communication uh, means. We launched in our D application. Uh, specifically radio and television. So the person uh, through this application can get access to some truthful sources of information, which I believe also, you know, important dimension of this work. And so many, many uh, other things we did. And uh, but again, you know, we are working very closely with uh, other governments and with big business. And after that, we believe that public-private partnership and international cooperation is uh, one of the, the key components of digital resilience in the big Ukraine. So one of the amazing things watching from the outside has been the resilience of the Ukrainian internet uh, in the face of these missile attacks. I wanna bracket the issue of attacks on power supply for a moment, which I'll come back to, but 
it seems to me that there has been, you, you know, you, you have these places where cities have been destroyed. I'm thinking particularly of Mariupol, and yet people uh, are able to, or at different times have been able to communicate out of them. Uh, there has been amazing degree of connectivity given the amount of destruction. And I'm, I'm interested in how you guys have managed that how is it that in the face of the, the kind of devastation, you've really kept the internet up and allowed a remarkable array of communications in and out of the country and within the country? Yes, Benjamin, it's very important right now. In the current, uh, in the modern world, it's very important to be online, you know, and to stay online. And uh, this is probably our war, unfortunately, is the first uh, online war at all because of everyone had and uh, still have uh, connection and uh, they are uh, posting the photos, video, and they are tweeting, commenting, everything they see. And you can watch this war from, in any, from any point of the uh, world. And... Uh, it because of we were able to agree and we asked Elon Musk and SpaceX Corporation for their help. Because of Russian destroyed Russians when they came, uh, the first thing they are doing, they are destroying all cell towers and they are destroying optic fiber connections. So we believe that they destroyed around 25% of our telecommunication infrastructure. One of the most developed in Europe. And so they have uh, just cut it. I believe 18 point, we, we have some, we counted 18.7 thousand kilometers of optic fibers. And they are ruined water of infrastructure. And we have to do, we had to, to replace them. And we thankful to SpaceX uh, for their donation. We received the first batch directly from SpaceX. Uh, and we started to use Starlinks on our territory. After that, we received a few batches from EU countries. Um, and we received uh, 5,000 kids from, uh, with support of USAID. We received 6,570 with support of Polish government. So we have right now around, uh, with the support of the Ministry of Digital Transformation, uh, we received around 20,000 of uh, starring kids in Ukraine. In general, including other channels, uh, according to the data from SpaceX, we have on the territory of Ukraine around 25,000 kids, starving kids. And it allows us to, to for really, you know, to maintain and to, to support telecommunication in the areas where regular tele telecommunications fixed and mobile were ruined. And so uh, it was essential part of our digital resilience to replace by Starlink's uh, regular connection and uh, to, to provide people with connectivity to provide people with uh, mobile connection, you know, to connect cell towers or to restore cell towers to Canada with, with Starlinks, or to put Starlinks on vehicle and make mobile point for uh, Wi-Fi access where people can call to their relatives and say that, oh, thanks God I'm alive. 
really you know it was very important for for, for us and all uh liberalized cities uh like uh, uh izum balaklea kupans kharkiv region you know we are trying we just next to the uh our defense units we have our telecommunication teams which are restoring the connection and we believe very soon we will restore telecommunication also in Kherson wow so let's talk about the other element of resilience which is that uh you know at the beginning of the full scale invasion everybody expected at least everybody that i heard from expected very devastating russian cyber attacks and um those uh largely did not materialize and there have been a lot of different theories about why um one of them of course is that actually missiles work better and if you want to devastate Ukrainian cities uh blowing things up is more effective than attacking by uh digital means but another theory has been that you guys have been really effective in countering cyber attacks and so i'm i'm interested in your assessment of why ukrainian how ukrainian cyber defense appears so much more effective than people expected it to be and why russian cyber warfare capability appears so much less effective than people expected it to be mm, you know it's quite uh let's take tricky question for us we 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 are exploring this as well first of all i believe the secret of success is probably you know uh, we are under russian cyber attacks since 2014 and for this eight years we were building our cyber security uh infrastructure we experienced four large scale uh, cyber attacks on our energy infrastructure we had we suffered from the apetia not petia which were directed to ukrainian financial infrastructure but as a side effect you know the world losses is about according to the state department is more than 10 billion dollars uh even according to some sources even more and uh exactly we 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 were building our cyber security we established specific agencies particularly under our ministry we have a specific cyber security service uh, which is called sssap we have national cert also in this agency in general we have nine subjects of cyber security in ukraine we have legislative basis uh, for uh, cybersecurity and it's built on the best practices of uh, the uh, european union and nato uh, we have cyber strategy and we have plan how to prevent that we are conducting uh, some exercises regularly and we are working very closely with our international partners particularly with united states uh, you know uh, since 2000 september 2017 i, I remember you know we started uh, us ukraine cybersecurity dialogue and so this cybersecurity dialogue uh, has a few dimensions and it's a few flows with different agencies and what's very helpful for us to understand and to to uh, to exchange experience with our colleagues to receive the best practices and uh 
uh, also um, because they are experts and uh, to uh, establish systems of exchange of uh, cyber threats and intelligence. Also, we have the cybersecurity dialogue with the European Union and with uh, bilateral dialogues with a few other countries. So we believe it's also a very important component because in the current modern world, world it's very difficult to reach you know, resilience and cybersecurity uh, for, for, for just on one, only one country. Another dimension of that from the their side, you know, uh, maybe the uh, cyber, Russian cyber capabilities were maybe a little bit uh, overestimated. Like Russia overestimated their own capacity in kinetic sphere as an army, maybe they overestimated their cyber capabilities. Exactly, we've heard and we, we learned uh, all activities of APT-28, APT-29, cyber nukes, uh, and exactly they were trying to offensive beers and the others, and exactly they were trying to hit our uh, system. The first attacks uh, started, they started even the, before the full-scale invasion, they started in, in January, and uh, in the middle of February, we experienced the biggest DDoS attack on our system, and it was already obvious that it was kind of preparation for the big-scale invasion. They were tested, are they able to uh, hit our uh, critical infrastructure simultaneously with the, uh, their invasion. And we saw the attempts to, to coordinate the cybersecurity attacks with kinetic attacks, particularly we had uh, uh, these cases in uh, Nikolaev region, uh, in Dnipro uh, state, uh, regional state government also, they had tried to, to, to hit and few other cases. And in general, we uh, right now for a moment, if I'm not mistaken, we, we uh, counted 1,000, more than 1,300 cyber attacks, not cyber incidents, but cyber, full-scale cyber attacks documented. So they are persistent, yes, they, they are trying, but uh, probably be, be because we were prepared, uh, no you know, crucial losses we have. Yes, they are trying. They are trying to hit our energy infrastructure. They are really trying to, to hit our financial infrastructure, information infrastructure. But no big losses still we have. Also, they are trying to use cyber criminals. And we saw it because of the, 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 the way they are uh, doing. They are not using such cyber weapon, which we are mostly appropriate to these uh, state-sponsored APTs. Like uh, which are supported, we believe, by FaceB, JRU, SVR, and they are terminated from Kremlin. But also, they are using cyber criminals and they are using such as like KillNet, for example, also to, to conduct their attacks. But once again, you know, uh, we have already kind of uh, strong uh, cyber security school in Ukraine, and we were working in tight close cooperation with our partners. Maybe this is everything. Yeah, so one of the things we have heard a fair bit about in the United States is the role that Microsoft has played as one of the Ukrainian partners in dealing with these cyber attacks. Can you talk about to what extent is this, uh, is this resilience 
to, to what extent is it a creature of, uh, you know, industry maturity in, in among your partners? And to what extent is it our Ukrainian government capability? Excellent question. And, you know, I had to mention about that. So we believe that uh, in general concept, you know, after the full scale invasion, we understood that uh, cybersecurity is very important, but it's just a part of the puzzle. We have to think about digital security wider, and we have to think about digital resilience. And we build this digital resilience together with our private, uh, let's say, with private companies, with our partners from business. And this public-private partnership is extremely important. You know, according to the U.S. sources, uh, I talked to Michael Chetov, I believe he mentioned that around 40% of this cyber uh, sphere belongs to the private sector. We cannot ignore private sector. It's key player uh, there. And yes, we we enjoyed support of Microsoft threat intelligence uh, team. They provided us with uh, some information even before attacks. And they uh, helped us uh, to investigate uh, such attacks. And uh, it was also very important. Also, we work with few, with few other companies. And uh, maybe we can mention them, maybe right now, maybe later. With recorded future with Mandy, and so we we have very close cooperation. We are working with uh, cybersecurity team of Google as well, and because of that, you know, maybe we were able to to prevent uh, some attack. And in the future, I believe the uh, public-private partnership is the essential point of the concept of digital resilience. It's impossible without private sector. So in this triangle. International uh, cooperation is very important, but cooperation with uh, tech companies is is not less important. So I believe that uh, digital resilience, we, we reach kind of digital resi- resilience beyond the national borders, just because of we had such cooperation with our international partners and with uh, private companies, which allows us you know, to redistribute data, to receive uh, telecommunication technologies, and to protect cybersphere as well. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I want to talk about information operations. As I said earlier, the dominance uh, that the Ukrainian government and supporters have had in the information space, at least in the West, is overpowering. And I, you know, you mentioned that 
uh, people should be able to fight this war wherever they are in the world through connectivity. And there have been a variety of very uh, aggressive and, and effective, I think, uh, information operations, the most famous of which, which your defense minister actually publicly acknowledged was the NAFO community. But there have been others as well. And I'm interested in, in how active the Ukrainian government has been in supporting and coordinating uh, these operations, or to what extent they are just uh, the sort of organic expressions of individual groups of Ukrainians and their supporters, both inside and outside the country. Benjamin, you understand that you know this area is quite sensitive, exactly. The same as in cyber, you know, we were trying to build our cyber defense uh, since the war started in 2014. We are building our information defense also over these years. And we are focused and we are still focused on countering disinformation, first of all. Unfortunately, uh, information became a dimension of this war, important dimension, and this information war did not uh, and it did not stop during uh, uh, these years. And Russia is using its historical experience. You know, they just continue the experience of Soviet Union. They just changed, you know, newspapers. And they are using like, uh, and they are using internet right now, social media blog platforms, blogs, uh, Telegram channels, uh, Facebook, uh, everything, uh, to spread their disinformation. And they are uh, focusing their disinformation not only in Ukraine, uh, you know, to convince uh, us uh, to surrender and you know to to give up but also to uh, European countries and other countries to, to, to somehow you know, to reduce the support and their readiness to support Ukraine and to fight. They focus their disinformation uh, efforts also on uh, not only in, you know, in English-speaking countries. They are very heavily uh, influenced on Spanish-speaking countries. They are influenced on Arabic-speaking countries. Uh, countries, the influence in Africa, India, China, uh, Latin America, just because of they are trying to influence on the countries which are uh, voting in the United Nations. And, but it's the key, <laughs> key component of that is that it's an extension of their own propaganda, their own you know, brainwashing machine in Russia. And so everything is based on a lie. And unfortunately, I have to say that this uh, internal propaganda and brainwashing is unfortunately is very effective. And since the start of the war, maybe we were naive, uh, a lot of our people, talented people in media, writers, journalists, they uh, decided that if they will show the Russian population, Russian people, you know, grassroots people, they will show that everything Russian army is doing in Ukraine, people will, you know, raise and uh, they will stop this war and they have uh, some protests, inspire some protests in Russia. 
they make clips, they make uh, photos, they report from the ground. Unfortunately, no way. Exactly, we have no uh, official, let's say, pools and sociology in Russia, but um, maybe they are just threatened, but it has no effect. But Russia is trying to conduct their information operation. What we did, all of these people, all of these professionals, they were just trying to show the truth, what's going on in, 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 in Ukraine, and they are trying to deliver their messages to, to Russia and to other countries. And maybe, you know, we, we have, we, and uh, we had uh, some misunderstandings with social media platforms, particularly, because the people, you know, they were suffering from Obviously, PTSD, they were under stress. And under attacks, it's very difficult to be politically correct and polite when you have missiles in your, you know, your head and your shahids hitting your uh, energy station nearby you, and you have no electricity, you have blackouts. And, but we, we are trying to explain this. Yes, we have to find a way how. Uh, these people can express their feelings. I believe they have this right, uh, but to follow some, let's say, rules in this case. I do not believe that this kind of ipso really, you know, maybe it's an attempt to, to, to deliver truth and uh, maybe, you know, it's our attempt to show uh, what's going on in, in reality. And uh, if you can say that our president, who is really, you know, talented person, um, is able to deliver his message and you call it uh, information operation, maybe yes, maybe it's kind of information operation in this case. To summarize what, what you just said, you seem to be saying that Ukrainian information operations are most effective in, in Europe and and the United States and the West, Russian operations have been relatively more effective in uh, areas of the developing world, particularly if I can add something to what you said in areas where grain purchases uh, are a weapon that is really deployable by the, by the Russians, grain availability. And uh, least, and your operations have been least effective in Russia itself, uh, where the visions and images of what Russia is doing in Ukraine actually don't seem to move the population very much. Is there a first of all? Is that a fair summary? And if so, what lessons can we draw from it? Is it is it basically that there are some places where you know, you're you're just not going to be able to make a lot of headway in the information environment, or is it that a different type of information approach uh, might be more effective in these spaces? What do you learn from it? We learn that you know we 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 cannot uh, generalize this uh, conclusion uh, over all population of Russia because they are different. I believe that Russia is building the Iron Curtain or rebuilding Iron Curtain around it. And, you know, just uh, to filter all information flows inside Russia, but uh, leave for them opportunity to influence the rest of the world. And I believe that such channels like YouTube, uh, 
for other communication means uh, we have to deliver truth to, to, to Russians. It's kind of, you know, historical traditions for them because of officially they have to follow the Kremlin's line, but unofficially somewhere on kitchens they are discussing more openly the truth, but they have to have access to this truth. So I do believe that we need to continue to deliver this truth through all existing channels. Uh, but once again, we have to be aware that we are competing with 20 plus years of brainwashing in Russia during the Putin's presidency. And so it's very difficult to, to convince people that, uh, you know, the rest of the world also has right to live as they want, not as Russian, Russia wants. You know, we choose our way. Ukraine choose our way of uh, democratic and humanitarian values. And we have right to live as we want, not as Russia wants. And so, yes, we have to convince them somehow. All right, we're going to go to audience questions. If you have a question, uh, please uh, wait for the microphone to come to you before you ask it. Um, and while the microphone is making its way around, I will... Uh, ask one final question, which is in the last several weeks since the uh, attack on the Kersh Bridge, Russia has really gone after Ukrainian power facilities uh, and energy infrastructure in a, in a very aggressive fashion. Uh, how is that affecting uh, internet resilience and, uh, and digital resilience in general? Are there internet problems that are arising simply out of as a collateral damage from from attacks on power infrastructure first of all you know i would not like to connect it with attacks on carriage bridge or what happened in carriage bridge we i believe that and we believe that russia deliberately they plan to attack our energy infrastructure before and they were trying to do that uh, even before that and they will uh, continue these attacks on our energy infrastructure. They hit it right now. In one moment, they hit it around 40% of our energy infrastructure. They are trying to do it through kinetic means and through uh, cyber attacks right now. They are not, uh, they have maybe not enough uh, cruise missiles right now. They are using quite comparatively cheap uh, Iranian, Iranian drones, Shahids. For that, but nevertheless, exactly, it's very extremely painful and uh, it's extremely uh, uncomfortable for our people to live in the situation of unpredictable, unpredictable blackouts. So in Kiev, we particularly, you know, had uh, sometime three, four uh, interruption of electricity per day for four hours. So twelve hours per day, you have no electricity. It's quite difficult. And we are trying, as a Ministry of Digital Transformation, we are trying to, to uh, support and to maintain our uh, infrastructure, telecommunication infrastructure, to, to help our fixed uh, internet providers and mobile providers uh, uh, with uh, generators, with uh, power packs, power banks, 
uh, we again I can say that you know I contacted with uh, Tesla and asked them to sell us uh, Tesla power walls for those purposes particularly you know and we are looking for some partners to for these supplies over all over Europe and the United States and yes definitely we have to to to, to somehow strengthen our resilience in the energy sector as well because of energy sector is uh, influences the telecommunication sector and then energy sector as you can imagine we have quite severe winters in Ukraine, and unfortunately, we can predict that Russia will strengthen their heats to our energy infrastructure during this winter. So we have to be ready. All right. Uh, so when the uh, microphone comes to you, uh, please uh, do introduce yourself and uh, pose your question. Oh, hello. I'm Frédéric Duzet. I'm a professor at the French Institute of Geopolitics in Paris and the director of the Center Geod. My question is, at the beginning of the war, the deputy prime minister of Ukraine wrote a letter to ICANN and to RIPE NCC um, to ask them to put sanction on internet resources for Russia. And I would like to reflect on this and explain maybe what you were trying to achieve and were there any concerns that the Russian citizens might also be cut off from the internet uh, facilitating brainwashing. Thank you. You know, the question has two aspects. First of all, uh, we want to deprive uh, Russia all possible means which they can use as a weapon. They weaponize uh, internet as well. And they weaponize this information sphere. And we are asked, uh, we ask companies and social media platforms to stop uh, and to stop broadcasting state-sponsored uh, Russian outlets, just to stop the spreading of disinformation. And the second one, you know, it's also important. If Russia behaves uh, itself as a medieval tribe, let them live as medieval tribe without access to modern technologies. Because of these modern technologies, they are misusing and they're using them to create weapon against this democratic world. And we believe uh, this uh, model is not sustainable because of the country which uh, in the 21st century decided you know, to break all rules uh, has no right to live in this civilized uh, world in the same, uh, let's say, uh, life condition with uh, the rest of the world. Maybe the general idea is, uh, is that. So, and uh, in information dimension as well, you know, to stop off uh, Russian websites, uh, which are spreading disinformation, I believe is very important. Thank you for your time and thanks for the, uh, for the address. Stefan Dugam, the CEO of the Cyber Peace Institute. We are tracing since the invasion, the, um, the cyber attacks that are deployed in the context of this uh, conflict. And uh, we could see so far that uh, 65 threat actors impacted more than 22 sectors between uh, civilian, civilian infrastructure, civilian objects, but more importantly, with a spillover in 34 countries, so way beyond the borders of Ukraine and Russia. So my question would be, did you engage with other states, the ones that are impacted by these attacks, and what is their feedback discussion when it comes to the fact that they are also impacted by attacks that are engineered in the context of the conflict? Oh, thank you. It's a very interesting question. Uh, first of all, 
Russian attacks uh, became more targeted, let's say, comparing with not Patreon and comparing to 2017, uh, it's much more deliberate. But they are using the specific uh, malware and kind of thunderworms and, and uh, you know, Whispergate and uh, other. We believe it's kind of cyber weapon and uh, this malware. And exactly, we are in contact with other countries. We are exchanging the information. We particularly have very close and good connections with the uh, Department of Homeland Security and with CISA. We exchange in cyber threats. We exchange in with many other agencies information as well as cyber threat intelligence. And to prevent some, such losses in, uh, for them as, as well. But again, you know, the tactics uh, changed, the strategy changed. They are using more uh, phishing attacks, uh, they're using social engineering, they are trying to, to you know, make shells to some particular objects, and they're using specifically prepared malware. Also, by the way, not only for the Windows-based platform, but also for uh, servers, uh, hardware servers running on Linux. And so we can say that Russia is uh, working on cyber weapon and in some large dimension, you know, it has to be prohibited like you know, nuclear weapon. It has to be, this sphere has to be regulated. You know, in sense of, uh, internet became some uh, toxic sphere, very dangerous. And uh, it, it will be weaponized if it will not be regulated in the dimensions, it will be not well protected in this sphere. So we believe that uh, strong international cooperation and participation in the threat intelligence exchange is very important for our countries for their cybersecurity and digital resilience. Yes, thank you very much. My question would be aiming at the refugee situation of uh, countless millions of uh, Ukrainian refugees all around the world. And also to what extent you see with your ministry the mandate also extending towards them in the sense of still uh, accessing some of the technology that you've originally meant to be using, of course, uh, in peaceful times. Um, things come to mind like, are there restrictions on media use for for example, um, Ukrainian refugee uh, school children that would like to utilize, you know, um, content that is available in Ukrainian only. Are there roaming restrictions? Do they use VPNs? How is that dimension something that you have in your mind when thinking about engagement of the population that is also right now, unfortunately, outside of the country as well? Thank you very much. Great question. You know, I mentioned Dia. The application, by the you know, the, everything you have in your smartphone. Many people left a country on February 24th, February 25th, and you know, early, uh, late February, uh, early March, without any paper documents. Because of, say, first of all, they had everything in their uh, phone. And they came to other countries and they were surprised that DA is not working. Uh, the, so right now we improve the situation and we introduce DA in English and we are working with other countries to recognize these electronic documents in your mobile application DIA as, uh, as legal documents in your country. Particularly we are working with our Polish uh, 
obviously the government of Poland on that. And also, you know, this de-application is the uh, mean, it's a, what does citizenship mean? The connection between the person and the government. And to keep this connection, you know, you need somehow to, to, to uh, you, you need some means for that too. And we believe this de-application is one of the two which allows uh, a person to, to stay in contact with the government, to receive their uh, information, to receive their document, to receive their services, even, you know, outside country. We also have internally displaced person, people, and they also need such uh, services. So in this case, we are providing them with information. With, uh, we are providing them with services. They can register some losses. They can apply for some assistance. They can inform government and receive the papers and receive their documents and everything you know remotely, just using internet and using their mobile application. So we believe it was a kind of stress test for all our system. And uh, it was kind of, kind of challenge for our ministry, but we, we, we were able to support our people and we are working on that and quite successfully. And we decided after that maybe to propose our DIA application as a platform to other countries, particularly for uh, European countries, and to build something the same on the full uh, scale, full, full European scale. At least, you know, uh, the application which will be universal for other countries and which allow people to move through the borders and have no slew of different applications, but have one application which allow you to have all your necessary documents in one place and all services. Uh, my name is Brandon Pugh. I'm with the Arshard Institute, uh, a nonpartisan think tank in Washington, D.C. Uh, my question pertains to data privacy and data security. We saw a lot of reports uh, in the U.S. that Russia was amassing information on uh, members of the Ukrainian military, uh, as well as intelligence professionals, and trying to exploit that, not only for disinformation, but also for physical harm. Has your office done anything to, to try to protect that information? And then if so, is there any best practices kind of going forward? Because I think that trend will probably continue in the military space. Good question. And Painful question, unfortunately. You know, Russia is trying to attack. So these cyber attacks, as I, as I uh, mentioned before, they uh, aimed at our information infrastructure as well. They uh, they were trying to receive access to our, our personal data of our uh, citizens, particularly, you know, to uh, to false to falsificate the uh, polls in the uh, Lugansk, Donetsk, Kherson, and the Parisian Oblast. And also exactly they are trying to, to, to get info and personal data of our soldiers, of our officers, and for people who are uh, defending um, our country. And uh, they are working on that quite uh, professionally. Uh, yes, you cannot exclude that they uh, were successful in a few cases. In particular, I know that Kilnet is working on that very uh, you know, actively. And they even, you know, uh, reached uh, the Instagram of uh, General Zaluzhny, chief of staff of Ukraine, we are trying to protect them exactly. And so uh, we have some rules internally in Ukraine and uh, we asking our people not to take photos of, uh, to take pictures 
of the phases and the move of military technique because of everything which is posted in social media, Russians are monitoring very closely. And so for that purposes, we have to be very careful and uh, we are working on kind of cyber and information hygiene. So we started it before the war because of it was important and we are trying to, to educate our people to teach them how to conduct themselves in this uh, situation in this world, how to protect their personal data, what to do with their smartphone, how to, to, to protect the data from their smartphone from the breach, how to change their passwords and everything. And also in information sphere, you know, not to, to enter their personal data on some suspicious websites and so on. So yes, we are working and we are trying to, uh, to protect them, but almost, you know, we, we, we are trying to do, to do that uh, successfully, even we had some breaches. We are going to leave it there. Uh, please join me in saying Dyakuyu to and Slava Ukraini to our, our guest. And uh, you know, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, Bergman. Slava Ukraini, hero and Slava. Thank you very much for your invitation and thank you for having me. Peace and prosperity to your country. We will be thinking of you and Ukrainian forces uh, in the days and months to come. Thank you very much. We, we, we are doing our best, not only for ourselves, but we believe also for the rest of the uh, democratic world. Thank you very much. Thank you for your support. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution, and this time it is produced in cooperation with the Hewlett Foundation. Thanks to Kelly Bourne and all the Hewlett folks for making this audio available and inviting me to interview Minister Dubinsky. Hey folks, you should do your part to support the Lawfare Podcast. Become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com slash lawfare. The Lawfare podcast is edited by Jen Patya Howell. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. And as always, thanks for listening. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.